Would you now take a copy of the scriptures, if you have them, and turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. This will be our scripture reading. The heading says that this is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Verse 1. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there's no help for him in God. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who've taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning, would you imagine with me a man leaving the ancient city of Jerusalem? He's surrounded by a group of friends and family. And as you look closer, he looks like any other man. But what you don't see is that he's actually a king. He's obviously in distress. He has his back turned to the city and he's weeping as he goes. And all of his companions, all of his household are weeping with him. You see, he's recently been betrayed by someone he loves, by someone incredibly close to him who has walked with him. And he knows that he's facing the discipline of God for sin. And not for the sin of others, but for his own sin. The man's name is David. He was a man blessed by God, a man after God's own heart, the scriptures say. But years earlier, he had committed adultery. And to cover up that sin, he had then murdered, had the individual, had the man murdered to cover it up. And God confronted him with his sin and God said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And David repents, and God graciously forgives him. But the discipline remained. And so years later, this man, King David, ascends the Mount of Olives in tears, cursed by others, an army at his heels, with his kingship at the brink of destruction. I wonder, can you relate to David this morning? Many problems, many troubles, 
many discouragements. Many, many, many. Because life isn't right. What is David's instinct in the midst of peril, in the midst of problems? Where does he turn? Well, notice verse 1, how it begins. It's a direct address to an individual. Verse 1, Lord, how my foes increase. Look at verse 3, but you, Lord. Look at verse 7, rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. David directly addresses God, and he uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed to Moses when he first brought Israel out of slavery from Egypt. It's the name that sets him apart from every other possible God. And David's instinct in peril demonstrates who he believes God to be. Now, what isn't surprising here is that this psalm is a prayer for deliverance, for salvation. That's not surprising. What is surprising that it is David's prayer for deliverance from circumstances that he indirectly created by his own sin. David's understanding of who Yahweh is causes him to seek Yahweh's help even in that circumstance. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know what it is to bring problems to the Lord, to seek his face in difficulty. But when those problems or that peril is a direct result of our own sin, even when we've turned from that sin and repented, our first instinct is rarely to turn to God, is it? Our first instinct is often to try any other way, any other method to fix the problem. After all, we created the problem, right? So we ought to try to fix it before we turn to God. Isn't that biblical? Not too long ago in our culture, one of the most recognized Bible verses in all of Scripture was this. God helps those who helps themselves. There's a problem that's not in the Bible. Benjamin Franklin was the first to coin those ideas in those exact words. And inherent within them is a self-reliance, right? An independence. The sort of independence that we see written across the American story. But as a way of life, that philosophy stinks. It's a works-based relationship to God. It misunderstands entirely our own predicament as well as the posture of God towards us. If this is your conception of who God is, then you're missing the gospel. Your good news is not good news. It's purely transactional. 
you do this and God will do something in return. But the gospel is the good news that even when you and I couldn't do anything to help ourselves, even while we were still sinners, God did something. Christ died for us. So let me ask you the question. When you find yourself in one of life's many problems, to whom or what do you instinctually turn? Even in the problems and perils that perhaps you yourself have created. Now, there are many ways we could investigate this psalm together this morning. As I was looking through my handwritten notes on this psalm, I counted no less than eight different outlines to try to choose from. But I'd like to look at this psalm as an invitation to adjust our instincts. An invitation to adjust our instincts. So let's look at the psalm under four headings. The problems, the practice, the pillow, and the protection. Number one, the problems of life, the problems that we face. In David's case, the problems he faced are centered on enmity. Absalom, his son, has claimed the throne. And it seems like the whole nation of Israel is now out to get King David, God's anointed. Remember Psalm 2? I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, a Davidic promise that, yes, is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, but applied to all of the Davidic kings. That king is on the run. His enemies are many, and they are strong. He says, how many are my adversaries? And they're actively pursuing him. They're rising up, present tense, ongoing against him. And they're triumphant, and they're confident. He says, how many are saying to my soul, there's no salvation for him in God? So David lays out the situation, and as he does so, notice that he frames it in terms of who God is, Yahweh, what the nature of his own problems are, strong, active, triumphant, confident adversaries, and what is at stake, deliverance, salvation. That's what this boils down to. When you and I face problems in life, what is at stake is nothing short of deliverance. The question underlying financial stress, same-sex attraction, hostile or unpredictable family members, mental health issues, it all boils down to this question. Ultimately, ultimately, where does deliverance come from? We recognize problems as invitations. Invitations to develop a Godward knee-jerk reaction. Even before we are aware of what the problem is, David is crying out, Yahweh, Lord. So what's your knee-jerk reaction when the bills start to pile up? due to the financial pressures that maybe you yourself partially created. 
To whom or what do you instinctually turn when the peril of depression is weighing over your soul? When you find yourself in a knot of your own making due to your sin or the sin of others, where does your gut guide you? The answer to that question betrays your functional God. But problems for the worshiper of Jesus, for the follower of God, becomes for us an invitation to test this thesis. That deliverance is found in no one else and nothing else apart from God. Now, I'm not saying that good budgets aren't wise for overcoming financial stress. Nor am I saying that medication and therapy are not common grace goods and that a believer should never take advantage of them. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that practical steps should never be taken in the midst of problems. In fact, we need to see these wise practical steps as integral parts of God's deliverance. His deliverance is all-encompassing, and there's nothing that we can truly label as the part we do and the part God does. All is from Him. But... What the psalmist is doing is bringing us to this question. From where ultimately do you look for deliverance from your problems? We need to recognize our problems as invitations to adjust our instincts. So the problems we face. Second, the practice. The practice of prayer. Verse 3, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. How do you conceive of God in the midst of your problems? Is he the creator of your problems? Is he the orchestration of your peril? Is he the school teacher handing you the mass sheets with 10 problems in 15 minutes to find the solutions? Or in the midst of your problems, is God the one who is personally present to defend you, to protect you, to preserve you? Notice that this is not just knowledge or truth in these verses. God is a shield. God is glorious. God is the one who lifts people's heads up. Those are true statements, every one of them. But in context, David's not just stating truth. He is personally applying and agreeing with truth. He's taking real truths and religiously rehearsing them to himself and personalizing them in prayer. Yahweh, you are a shield around me. When Absalom and his cohorts are advancing upon me, you are a shield wrapped tightly around me. Yahweh, you are my glory. I've left the seat of my kingdom, my throne, all the trappings of my royalty back in Jerusalem. I'm trudging up the Mount of Olives at night, but you are my glory, my only true glory. And while the same nation that recognized that you had made me king 
has now turned their back on me, yet you remain committed to your promises and thus committed to me. You are the one who lifts up my head. Not any people, not any grand strategy for retaking my kingdom. Our problems are not just invitations to adjust our instinct. They become invitations to practice prayer. Prayer that is rooted in the nature of God, the promises of God, prayer that is persistent and raw. Verse 4 says, With my voice to Yahweh, I kept crying. Persistent desperation. He's indicating that his prayers are actually verbal. It's not enough for him to bow his head and close, close his eyes and pray internally. The need is so real that he believes his voice needs to be heard. This is not an inner silent prayer that easily nods off to sleep. This is a persistent, desperate prayer because David knows the problems are too big for him, even though he partially created them. So he verbally, persistently keeps crying out to the God who is himself steadfast, loyal love. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller recommends simple prayers to develop this sort of persistent, desperate prayer. He says this, I discovered myself praying simple two- and three-word prayers, such as, teach me, or help me, Jesus. The Psalms are filled with this type of short bullet prayer. Praying simple one-word prayers or a verse of Scripture takes the pressure off because we don't have to sort out exactly what we need. He goes on to relate that the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that short prayer can be traced all the way back to the 5th century as a regular prayer. Even this week, I found myself praying over and over again when I don't know what else to pray, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This type of prayer is persistent and it's real. And what I mean by that is that it's aimed the right direction. It's real prayer. This is not a prayer to some higher being. Not a prayer to all that is or the universal human consciousness or Wonder Woman or some disembodied virtue like eternal mercy. Nor do we pray or through prayer try to become one with the non-personal all as in Eastern mysticism. Largely, the sort of prayer directed to someone or something other than the God of the Bible is the sort of prayer our therapeutic culture is comfortable embracing. But real prayer is directed to the one who is. The God who has spoken. The Father who has declared himself to be who he is. And the God David knew only as Yahweh, we know by grace through faith in Jesus to be our Father. 
are patient, ever-loving, ever-joyful, ever-faithful, ever-merciful Father who delights to give us grace and mercy in our times of need. And yes, He is sovereign and in control, and that should not be a reason not to pray. His sovereignty and His power and in His control ought to bring us, cause us to bring our request to Him. He is sovereign, yes, but He wants to hear His children delight to pray to Him. He's a Father who welcomes us at any moment for any need at any time without any request for an RSVP. But unless we see him that way, then our prayer life will be dull. It will be lifeless. It will be perfunctory and spotty. What's the alternative to that sort of prayer in problems? Anxiety. Anxiety is our attempt to tackle our own problems in our own strength. Prayer is embracing our own helplessness in hope so that we learn to rely on the strength of another. After all, isn't this how Paul frames it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6? Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, Paul. How on earth are we supposed to not be anxious about life in a broken world? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if it sounds a bit like I'm a doctor this morning, diagnosing with unusual accuracy our failures in prayer and our instincts against prayer, the reason for that is because I'm speaking from personal experience. I am speaking as one in whom God is revealing self-reliance and an ungodly independence, not a hopeful helplessness that leads me to cry out to God. I'm speaking as one who can tend towards anxiety. But God has been bringing me deeper and deeper into the waters of my own helplessness, weakness, depravity, and he's been meeting me every step of the way with a supersized portion of his grace, his love, and his father, fatherly care for me. The problems we face are invitations to adjust our instincts. And we begin to adjust that instinct through the practice of prayer. And when we do that, what do we discover? Number three, our pillow. The pillow of peace. I can almost hear the interview. Benjamin from the New Jerusalem Chronicle and Podcasts approaches David the morning after vacating the city. And he begins to interview him for Good Morning Jerusalem. King David, a moment of your time, please. So as any good reporter, I'm going to tell you just how far you have fallen. You have abandoned Mount Zion, the place where God has chosen to dwell, the hill of his holiness. You've been forced out of your palace. You're being chased by your son who wants your throne and wants you dead. Oh, and you've been betrayed not only by your son, but by your chief counselor, Ahithophel. 
You've been cursed by Shimei and called a dead dog. You wept your eyes bloodshot the whole trek up the Mount of Olives last night, and you're partially to blame for all of this because of your adultery and murder. So, King David, how did you sleep last night? Verse 5. As for me, I laid down and slept. I woke up, for it's Yahweh who keeps supporting me. What a turn. What an unexpected response. This verse is actually the center of the psalm. David is structuring this psalm to point us to this verse. There are terrible problems at the beginning and those same unresolved problems at the end. But in the midst of this, David is able to say, I slept great and I woke up again. What is David's secret? The secret is this. He has a great pillow. Good pillows are hard to find, aren't they? How many times have you been shopping for a good pillow? I'm guessing many of you have been at least once in your life. And if you've been at least once in your life, that actually means you've been two or three or four times trying to find the right one. In fact, when we travel as a couple, there's been at least a couple of different instances where we actually asked the person behind the hotel desk if we could buy one of their pillows because they were so comfortable. We finally found one that worked. Believe it or not, we've actually bought pillows that way. You should try it. So what is David's secret pillow? Simply this. Yahweh. You and I know him as Father. His pillow was the God who supported him in his sleep. He was no longer in his palace. He was no longer secure. There is plenty to be anxious about. Family turmoil roiling all around him, but David slept well, supported by Yahweh. You see, God had answered David's prayers. God had heard David's prayers from the mountain of his holiness, Mount Zion, and God responded with support and peace. Now, please hear me clearly. I'm not promising to you, nor do the scriptures, that the cause of your sleeplessness is the fact that you're not praying. Nor am I saying that if you pray faithfully today, God's going to give you an incredible night's sleep tonight. I'm not saying that. In fact, God as a gift to his children may at times remove sleep from us to keep us dependent upon him. And that's a gift. But the rest of Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says this. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. David's pillow becomes for us our protector. The Father's peace becomes our bodyguard through Jesus. The problems we face the practice of prayer, the pillow of peace, 
forth the protection we need. The psalm continues with one more desperate prayer. Rise, Yahweh. Save me, my God. And it ends with both a statement and a promise. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Now, earlier we argued that problems we face are an invitation to adjust our instincts in seeking deliverance. They bring us to this question. Ultimately, where does our deliverance come from? Now, the psalm began by David's enemies blasphemously declaring of David that his deliverance was not to be found in the God he had trusted. The psalm ends with this powerful refrain, deliverance belongs to Yahweh. It's not something that on occasion he will offer. It's not something on occasion he manages to bring about. It's not like the occasional byproduct of the acts of God on occasion happen to be deliverance. No, deliverance belongs to him. It's his alone to dispense. But how do we know this to be the case? Let's be honest. Does life in a broken world feel like that God really is the one who dispenses deliverance? Think about your story. Think about your brokenness. How do we know that God delivers? Because hundreds of years later, Another covenant king left the same ancient city of Jerusalem, obviously in distress, surrounded by a group of friends and family. He was also betrayed by a friend. He was rejected as king by his own people. He also ascended the Mount of Olives in tears. And he was also cursed by others and soon to be cursed by God. His promised kingdom was also at the brink of seeming destruction. And this man cried out with tears and groaning, sweating great drops of blood in his distress because he was facing the unthinkable, being forsaken by his heavenly father. And this man, Jesus, prayed for deliverance. And the answer was no. He accepted the answer as from God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As a man of prayer, Jesus' instinct was to turn to his father in the midst of trouble. And he trusted him without hesitation. And this same king went to his death willingly so that the family of God might be expanded, so that he could be raised from the dead, crushing man's greatest problem, sin, defeating man's greatest enemies, death and Satan, 
breaking the teeth of the wicked and shaming all of his enemies with the death blow slap on the cheek. And all of this so that you and I can come to know that deliverance, salvation belongs to God and to God alone. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit broke the teeth of Satan, struck their enemies the ultimate blow so that we might stand in the hope of verse 8. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And so his blessing is on his people. This doesn't mean our earthly problems are going to disappear overnight. But it does mean that we are now freed to bring those problems to God in prayer and find his care and support and power and protection in the midst of our problems. We will receive the yes where Jesus received the no. Believe it or not, the blessed life of Psalm 1 and 2, the prosperity of Psalm 1 are unalterably connected to Psalm 3 and its problems. As one man says, blessedness will never be experienced precisely in, will, oh, sorry, blessedness will be experienced precisely in the midst of such a mess. Violence, turmoil, family turmoil, the agony of loving rebellious children, threats to life and livelihood. The way of the righteous is not a detour around the trials and troubles of life. The way of the righteous is the trust that God is walking with us. God is present in the depths, and even there, God makes life possible. So friend, follower of God, allow the problems you face to drive you to the God who delivers you. He is your pillow of peace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being forsaken on our behalf. Father, thank you for making a way for our sin and the problems we have created by our sin. To have a solution that is far beyond anything we could ever create. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers, for demonstrating once and for all on the cross of Calvary, on Mount Zion, on the hill of your holiness, that you are for your people. Thank you for placing us into King Jesus, for resurrecting him from the grave, for giving us life and hope in him. 
Forgive us for seeking deliverance in anyone or anything else apart from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.